Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. I consider that I'm responsible for a whole new school of retention. <laughs> that is great. I understand. That is a good receipt. Really, and I'm quite serious about it. The only thing that seems to shock anybody in the is something is pretentious. Los Angeles, 1975. David Bowie arrives from the East Coast months after the soul-influenced singles Fame and Young Americans exploded on the radio, becoming the two biggest hits of his career. By that point, Bowie had become rock's greatest chameleon, starting with the glittery Ziggy Stardust three years earlier. He morphed in and out of characters as casually as he changed clothes. Now he had come to Los Angeles ready to shed his skin yet again and invent a whole new persona. The thin white Duke would be Bowie's darkest character yet, a cold yet theatrical cabaret singer based on an extraterrestrial he had played in the film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And as the Duke, Bowie made the art rock odyssey station to station. The result was perhaps Bowie's greatest album. But as Cameron Crowe, who interviewed Bowie at the time for Rolling Stone, remembers, it might have also brought him to the brink of madness. It's one huge performance. And it is him creating the Thin White Duke character. And in the end, the Thin White Duke character began to eat him alive. One, two, three, four, five. Break down, baby. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our new list. In this episode, David Bowie's Station to Station. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, 
for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Making of Station to Station is a story of genius and reinvention, topped with an avalanche of white powder and a sprinkle of black magic. Here's Rolling Stone associate editor Angie Martosio with the full story. In 1975, Cameron Crowe was living a teenage journalist's dream, interviewing Fleetwood Mac, the Almond Brothers Band, and Led Zeppelin. But there's one interview he never thought he'd get, his white whale, David Bowie. It's still kind of a miracle that the interview happened. Basically, it came from loving Deep Purple. I loved writing about Deep Purple. Nobody at Rolling Stone wanted to write about Deep Purple. Glenn Hughes was this amazing singer. We really hit it off. And then I also was writing about Ron Wood, who was friends with Glenn Hughes. And in the middle of all this, while interviewing Ron Wood, David Bowie walked into his hotel room. Ron Wood introduced me to him, not knowing that David Bowie did no interviews and was kept completely away from reporters. They had their interaction. And because they're buddies, I kind of was watching it from three feet away and going, boy, no writer has gotten this close to Bowie in a long time. Bowie leaves and and Ron Wood goes, so that was great. You should interview Bowie sometime. I'm like, I'd love to interview Bowie. He goes, I'll put it together. Following one of Bowie's shows at the Universal Amphitheater in September 1974, Wood took Crow to an after party at the Beverly Wilshire where he bonded with Bowie over the spinners. Bowie said to me, essentially, you seem like a good guy. I'm going back to New York. Give me your phone number. I'll give you a call and we'll do an interview. I was 19 or 18, I think. Just was ecstatic that I'd even gotten that far. Never expected to hear from him. He was the most elusive, non-existent interview in rock journalism. A Couple months later, I'm sitting in my room in San Diego. Phone rings. It's David Bowie. And he says, I'm on a train coming from New York. I've just left my manager, Tony DeFries. I know only a few people in Los Angeles. You know Glenn Hughes. I know Glenn Hughes. I'll see you in LA. Meet me here. And we'll start doing an interview. This resulted in a series of interviews over 18 months long, amassing to around 20 hours of tape. His Rolling Stone cover will be Bowie's definitive interview of this period, capturing what it was really like to see the thin white duke in the flesh. His flaming orange hair was often slicked back as he smoked cigarette after cigarette, his gaunt frame usually sporting a white button-down and black trousers. And he stayed up for days at a time, dabbling in mysticism and the Kabbalah, and keeping bodily fluids stored in glass bottles. His diet famously consisted purely of cocaine, milk, and peppers. Several of the interviews took place at Glenn Hughes's house. The deep purple basis has vivid memories of living with a thin white duke. And I was privy to that the milk scenario, putting the cocaine in the milk if needed to be. David was very paranoid due to the excessive cocaine habit we both had. I don't like to talk about it, but it's already been spoken about. But yeah, we we were uh, we had our own demons there, both of us, uh, and we were both very very paranoid young men. It was a huge trip, not a bit of a trip, uh, because I was becoming fascinated by his way of existence. He spoke so much about the world in general 
and he was completely uh, in awe of space age, and he would draw things falling out of the sky. I was watching all of this go down. So for me, I was ensconced in what he was talking about. It was nonstop chatter, as you could imagine. It wasn't just two guys getting high. It was two guys that were really loving each other's company. Hints of Bowie's darkness can be found in his interviews with Crow. He even rattled off a few pro-fascist statements, claiming that he would have been a great Hitler. He clarified in later interviews that he wasn't actually a fascist. This was simply theater. Judging from the interview tapes, Bowie's mission was to grab listeners' attention any way he could. Years later, we, we did the interview for Rolling Stone that kind of looked back on that story. And um, he, he told me that um, he didn't remember any of the details of all that I had seen and all that we kind of like bonded over and stuff. He, he said a lot of it was the uh, ramblings of a young man addicted to amphetamine. And, uh, and at least I made some good music. He was basically riding around in a yellow Volkswagen that he was driving in Los Angeles with flaming red hair and that kind of jaunty marionette look that you see from photos of the era. And he would drive me home sometimes at like six in the morning or something, give me a ride back to where I was staying. And he would be pulled up right alongside businessmen that were going to work, you know, early morning, 1976, seven. But they would never know that next to them was David Bowie. Bowie respected his past, as he told Crow. I'm very proud of it. I am the king of Peter I love them all dearly. I love Ziggy and Aladdin and all of them. Not bang, I never banged in any of them all. I'm happy. I'm the king of Little Rock over here. It's great. It's nice, man, because I'm the king of something. <laughs> That's nice. Crow also got a front row seat in the studio, where he witnessed the making of Station to Station. Station to Station was very dramatic, and it seemed different from from what originally he was working on, which was like that kind of dancey Philly soul thing. This was this was something he found musically that I think really stood out, which was like very rigid and disciplined and a little European and steely with a hint of emotion. That was kind of the Thin White Duke thing. Bowie was deeply influenced by kraut rock bands like Can and Kraftwerk. And he used the album to introduce this sound to his American fans. But not all of the songs incorporated these influences. The glittery disco gem, Golden Years, could have easily fit on his previous record, Young Americans. Guitarist Carlos Alomar still hears these traces of pop very clearly. Now you go into this very, very bubblegum pop, TVC15 and Golden Years, rock and roll. Are you kidding me? That's not rock and roll. That's about as bubblegum pop. That could have been done by uh, Debbie Gibson for all I know. Alomar, who had also worked on Young Americans, received a call from Bowie, 
to come out to Los Angeles to record. All the acts that I have ever worked with, I don't know anybody's telephone number. They get my number. They call me. I say yes. Ring. Hey, Carlos. Hey, David. You know, well, you know, I'm in the studio. What you doing? Uh, I'm on Broadway. What? <laughs> I'm on Broadway. What are you doing on Broadway? I'm in Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, if you like, if you like Ziggy Stardust and Ties, you should see Tim Curry. Guitarist Earl Slick who played on Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour a year prior, was already living in L.A., then the epicenter of the rock universe. Oh, my God. L.A. in the mid-'70s was, I mean, it was the hotbed for every rock and roll band in the world. I mean, it was definitely one up on New York. Every club, there was like the Rainbow Barn Grill, the Roxy, a number of other places where everybody in every band from from completely unknown guys to, to Led Zeppelin would all hang out in the same places. It was, a, it was seven days a week. Bassist George Murray and drummer Dennis Davis also got on board. With Alomar, they created a rhythm section Bowie would use for the rest of the decade, up until 1980's Scary Monsters. Station to Station was the introduction of the Damn Trio. The Damn Trio is Dennis Davis, Carlos Alomar, and George Murray. What we have to understand is that there is a time when you lock something down and you go, oh my God, this is the bomb. I I can get anything I want out of this. The only thing they lacked was a piano player. As luck would have it, Slick's old friend Roy Bitten had recently joined Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, and they were in town. We checked into the Sunset Marquee to do some L.A. shows. And I stepped out on my balcony and I looked across the courtyard where the pool was and I see Slick standing on a balcony at his room. (laughs) So I called to him and, uh, you know, we yelled at each other. We went downstairs and he said to me, you know, I I don't believe it. He said, I was just talking to David about you. David knew that Bruce was coming into town and he wanted a piano player to come in and play on the sessions. He said, I got to call him and tell him that you're you're here. It was just a very fortuitous moment for me in, in the fact that, you know, there I was in L.A. and he was really just ready to do some piano work and It was a a great moment, you know, when things come together like that. Here's guitarist Earl Slick. The reason that the light bulb went off when I saw Roy was there's a difference between a keyboard player to me and a pianist. And Roy's a pianist. And having worked with Roy before, I thought, wow, he can do this. This is going to be perfect. And, and you know, that was the whole idea when I saw him. It just I knew he I knew he was right. In the fall of 1975, the band headed to Cherokee Studios in L.A. to start recording. Here's pianist Roy Bitten. Uh, just a classic recording studio. I remember walking down the hall there and and uh, I, I passed an open door and I looked in and there was uh, a, a couple in a hot tub. <laughs> they actually had a hot tub in, in one of the rooms. Here's guitarist Earl Slick. Oh, yeah. That was so normal in those places in the 70s. Like, Record Plant was famous for that as well. All those studios, yeah. 
And the funny thing was, is we never we never bothered with any of that shit. We were too busy recording. We didn't use any of that stuff. Listen to the record. And it was done relatively quick. So, you know, with all of the rumors or and truths about the amount of cocaine we were using, you know, when you're 25 years old, you can do that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. So, did Bowie's excessive cocaine use have an effect on Station to Station? Hell yeah. That record never would have been that record without cocaine, period. I mean... Don't try this at home, kids. But, you know, uh, it did do something to us, that's for sure. The band on station was a trip. Um, we'll start with Harry Maslin, our producer, who was the only one who wasn't high. Um, poor Harry. Maslin, known for producing Barry Manilow and Air Supply, had recently worked with Bowie and John Lennon on Fame. You know, I, I wasn't a, a cocaine fanatic. I, I have to admit I did a little bit of cocaine, but mostly to stay up and be able to, to keep up with David through the night uh, because he liked to work long hours. And, and I didn't mind the long hours, but it's, you know, a little bit of cocaine or coffee or something's going to help you stay up. But I didn't like the drug. David liked the drug. And it was difficult because I had to play friend uh, you know, brother, psychologist, and, and producer all on the same day. Station to Station kicks off with the title track, a fantastically bizarre 10-minute mashup of several songs. Bowie even proclaims, it's not the side effects of the cocaine. I'm thinking that it must be love. The uh, actual opening starts with a, uh, a train sound effect. And... Uh, wasn't sure whether I should use that sound effect or not because, you know, station to station is a very deep meaning. It's not necessarily a, a railroad train. Uh, it's stations of the Tree of Life and a few other things. But I thought, well, why not? Let's try the train uh, since of the obvious uh, title. And then, of course, right after that, Slick comes in with the feedback guitar, which, you know, you can either look at as a a train whistle or something else. Uh, there's, you know, layers of what we were trying to do at the time. It just kind of worked. Here's guitarist Earl Slick. That, to the best of my memory, that was three different pieces. 
that he had. And, and we kind of puzzled them together to turn it into what it is. There's the, you know, the body, the main body of the song, and there's, uh, it was weird. It was, I don't know how we did it. He had three separate ideas, and somehow they worked together. Um, and then the adding stuff like the train at the beginning, all that feedback that we did was on the spur of the moment. I, I think we'd had Harry up for like a day and a half, and we just decided we were going to feed back for a while. We Both of us were standing in front of a wall of marshals in Cherokee at the, in the middle of the night, feeding back. That's how spontaneous that whole thing was. This spontaneous approach was unfamiliar to Bitten, who had just finished making Born to Run, which was meticulously pieced together over months in the studio. It really was a matter of just making my way through the roadmap of the songs and trying to create a part. I realized that I, I think I only did a couple of takes on each song because I can hear myself developing a part as the song rolls along, whether it was uh, Station to Station with its really long, when we methodically recorded Born to Run. My piano parts on that record were well developed in the final takes, whereas this one was extremely extemporaneous. Whatever David was hearing, he seemed to want this sort of element of freeform playing. You know, it was uh, quite a different experience. Here's producer Harry Maslin. <laughs> yeah, well, Roy was great. And then Roy, he, he was kind of a, a fish out of water for a minute because I don't think he did know why he was there. <laughs> and uh, we, we just kind of threw him into it and, uh, you know, bent his arm to, to play on the project. And he just did a great job, of course. And he's a great guy. And uh, that worked out perfectly. We had a lot of good luck. The one line of direction Bowie did give to Bitten was to channel Professor Longhair, the New Orleans legend who developed his signature sound by learning to play a piano with missing keys. Coincidentally, Bitten had just seen the pianist at a show in Texas. He said, yeah, well, I'd, I'd like you to try and do like a little Professor Longhair thing on on this song, and the song was TVC 1-5. So when that song starts and you hear the piano in there, that's what it was. I was trying to, uh, to cop Professor Longhair for, for David. Station to Station concludes with a cover of Wild is the Wind, the song was first recorded by Johnny Mathis in 1957, but it was Nina Simone's version from the 60s that inspired Bowie to take a stab at it. Like Simone's, Bowie's take is seductive yet melancholic, with each line delivered slowly, like a desperate plea. It's widely seen as one of the greatest vocal performances of his career. Oh, it's one of the best he's ever done, hands down. 
Yeah, that's another one where it was probably not many takes uh, and kind of scary good, but he did an astounding job. And, you know, to this day, people kind of rave about that vocal. Cameron Crowe says it's his favorite track on the record. I would go wild as the wind. This is, it just sounds really weird to say, but like having been there when he recorded TVC 1-5, I still can't believe I watched that come together and taped it. So when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, this, this may be my favorite on the album because it's kind of like I have a personal connection to being so lucky as to have been there when he did it. But wild as the wind feels deeply resonant in the coolest way. Station to Station was released on January 23rd, 1976 and peaked at number three on the album charts a little more than a month later. Maslin was initially nervous about the label's impression. I was worried about it when we finished it because we had the RCA guys, all the top brass who were all kind of lawyer type people at the time. They all came down and they sat on the couch in Cherokee and I did a rough mix for them just so they heard what they were paying for and what the product was gonna be. I was kind of worried about what they were going to say. And when we finished, the president, I think it was Galancy at the time, he stood up and he looked like pale as a ghost. So I was like really worried. And he just praised us and and said he thought it was a great album and that uh, he thanked us for, for doing it. And I was quite relieved. Bowie often looked back on his Los Angeles period as the darkest chapter of his life. Even confessing in later years, he was so drugged out that he barely remembered making the record. As he said, I can't even remember the studio. I know it was in L.A. because I read it was. But some in Bowie's circle at the time, like Alomar and Crow, argue it was so painful he chose not to remember it. Let's remember there might be a little calculation around that. He doesn't remember anything because he doesn't want you to know his inner thoughts. You interpret it. I know from talking to him later about that story that he so valued the music and the musical choices that he made, but I think the emotional choices that he made scared him and later maybe even embarrassed him. I think he did remember what happened. I just think he didn't want to remember. and He certainly wasn't going to reminisce and you know, want to have a beer and think about the old days. I don't think he was that kind of guy. Everyone else who worked on the record ranks it as a career highlight, including Roy Bitten, who has also worked with the likes of Stevie Nicks, Peter Gabriel, and Lucinda Williams. Oh, my God. Well, David being David, and certainly uh, I have to rank it right up there with with Bruce you know I, I was I was fortunate enough to to play on uh, um, making movies with dire Straits and certainly Stevie's 
two solo records and a lot of other great artists, but David's right up there in the top. I got to put him right next to Bruce. Maslin attributes the overwhelming love of the record to the liberating way it was created. Well, yeah, I've, you know, I've recorded everything from tap dancers to, you know, animals. <laughs> so you, you name and I've recorded it. And going back to the fact that, you know, this was an album where we could express ourselves and had the time, you know, we didn't have to go through first verse, second verse, uh, bridge, chorus, whatever. We didn't have to follow traditions. And it let us really play around with our you know, inner feelings about certain things about music. Slick remained in Bowie's orbit for decades. He played on his penultimate record the next day and on Bowie's final tour before he died in 2016. He still performed Station to Station in its entirety on occasion, referring to it fondly as his baby. Everything fell into place. It was just a perfect storm of me being able to really contribute something that I felt really, really good about. Uh, because all of the records down the line sometimes, you know, Station is so different from Low, which is so different from Young Americans. They're all different. And that record was just the perfect record for me to do what I did. That's why. Station to Station became one of Bowie's most successful albums to date and proved his audience was willing to follow him to bold and surprising places. It gave him the confidence to further experiment with the avant-garde on his legendary Berlin trilogy, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, while recovering from his drug addiction. Here's writer and director Cameron Crowe. I think the Berlin trilogy is all about saving his life or at least starting the next chapter, which is I want to live and I want to figure out how to live while still being true to this music that, that I'm insanely curious and loving of. Station to Station landed at number 52 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list. To hear more, check out the Rediscover David Bowie playlist on Amazon Music. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Streamer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Angie Martosio. Mixing by Marquise Neal. Our senior producer is Michelle Lands. Additional production help by Mary Dew. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Wachning, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Special thanks to Cameron Crowe, Brian Hyatt, and Greg Mariotti. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums every Tuesday. And hear it first on Amazon Music.
Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.